Neves Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves Solicitors, your complete legal solution. And welcome to The Parent Show on Radio Verla 92.6 FM. I'm Cathy Weston and I'm joined in the studio this evening by Josie Nicholson. Hi, Josie. Hello, Cathy. Hi. And together we're going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Andrea Oskis um, later on in the show and also Dr. Felicity de Zuleta. And we are talking this evening about attachment. Now, don't turn off the radio. This is a very, very important topic, especially if you're a parent. And I'm going to be talking about attachment theory, which you may or may not have heard of back in the day in the 1950s. um, Bowlby was responsible for creating something called attachment theory. And he talked a lot about how children bond with their parents and the consequences and sequelae, I suppose, of of children not bonding with their with their children and with the children bonding with their parents. So it's all about attachment, belonging. How do you how do we bond with our children in those early days? How do we sustain those great positive attachments? And crucially, you know, when things might may feel might might go wrong and attachments maybe aren't so easily made in those early days, what can we do as parents to, to recover that? So those are the main themes we're talking about this evening. And we're going to be speaking to uh, Dr. Andrea Oskis in a moment who's a senior lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University in London. Her teaching and research expertise is primarily developmental and she looks at uh, psychophysiology and she's an expert in clinical and health psychology and she specialises within attachment research on interview assessments of attachment style parenting and early experiences of care and abuse. Now, she's also a psychotherapist, a member of the Bowlby Centre. There we are. We mentioned Bowlby a minute ago. There is a Bowlby Centre and she has a private practice in North London. So we're going to speak to Andrea in a second. I'm also joined in the studio by Josie Nicholson. Hi, Josie. Hello, and Josie is a counselling um, psychologist. So I'm a criminologist. Josie's a a, a, a psycho- counselling psychologist. Andrea is a psychotherapist, a lecturer in psychology. So we've all got an interest in attachment. And our last guest later on in the show will be the eminent uh, emeritus consultant psychiatrist, uh, uh, Dr. Felicity de Zuleta. And her expertise is on traumatic attachment how children may recover um, from having very difficult or uh, difficult early attachments or experience rupture, grief, trauma uh, in their lives and and the lovely things hopefully that can be done to help them recover. So that's an action-packed show on attachment and we'll kick it off with a chat with Andrea Oskis. Are you there, Andrea? Hi, Cathy. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Well, thank you so much. And we're going to start the interview you just with with you telling uh, our listeners a little bit about you Andrea and your work and how it relates to attachment of course yep so as as you um as you said correctly I'm a psychologist and I'm a psychotherapist as well and the commonality there in both of my lines of work is that I'm dedicated to understanding how our close relationships work um and as you said I do this as an academic at Middlesex University and a key part of that work is to take the knowledge that I know from my research and to help apply it into real-world settings because attachment has so many real-life applications, um, particularly in things like adoption and fostering. And so what I do at Middlesex is that I actually train people in how to measure attachment because, after all, you can't improve what you can't measure. So um, so that's a key part of my work. And that is hugely and interesting. And part of my work um, clinically in private practice I spend a lot of time working with people who are having difficulties in their relationships. Um, and then, in fact, my, my research background as a psychophysiologist is important there because we know that our relationships are good for our health and our relationships relate directly to the way that our body functions. So I've done a lot of work with stress hormones as well, and the classic one there being cortisol. Um, and the research 
unequivocally shows that as our relationships affect our body and our physiology and so our relationships and our health are really intertwined and so relationships and making better relationships is largely the message that underscores all of the work I do. And it's lovely listening to you because we're not, when we talk about attachment theory, we're not just talking, as I mentioned in the introduction, about parent baby bonding. We're talking no, about attachment not. styles. Attachment theory is a theory um, that is a lifespan theory. Um, it, it's about looking at the way we develop across the lifespan in our relationships with each other. So let's talk about the early days, I think, where people typically, um, you know, they think about attachment theory, bonding with baby. Absolutely they do. Um, And that's one of the ways that Bowlby first came about um, with his theory. Um, And what he was the first person to do was to talk about the early relationship in in a really specific way. And what he effectively said is that, Children engage in behaviors um, to achieve closeness to the people that take care of us. So his message was actually about proximity. And he really talked about it in a specific way to say that when a child is frightened or when they feel ill or tired, they'll let the parent know that their their safety is threatened. And it's actually that safety function that makes an attachment relationship different from what might be an ordinary social bond. And that is something that's in play from the word go um, in the lifespan. And that's a key message of Bowlby's. And we know that when, as soon as you have your baby in the hospital, the first thing they do is they're concerned about that attachment in those early moments, in those early days, by putting the baby on your chest, etc. Absolutely. Um, um, and this is, again, another one of Bowlby's messages that we take from attachment theory. It's the idea of generating a sensitive, um, available, and responsive parent. And as you correctly say, touch is a key way of facilitating that um, from the earliest point. Now, we're going to talk a little bit. I'm just going to bring Josie in here because she was telling me a lovely way that parents might actually remember, um, you know, what what does it mean um, in terms of creating that bond, Josie, when you're trying to create that lovely, positive, secure attachment between you and the baby? So what is it that the baby actually is looking for, Josie? Well, I think terminology has often been used in terms of attachment around being a secure base and being that place where where a child will know that they can rely upon you and be dependent on you. And we're encouraged to support the child explore by, as a parent, watching over them, delighting in our children, helping them and enjoying being with them. And they can pick up from that some some cues that, you know, we're really attentive, we're, we're sensitive and we're there for them. And another uh, part terminology often used is about being a safe haven. Um, again, protecting, as, as you were saying, Andrea, uh, welcoming the child coming to us, um, protecting them, comforting them, as you were saying as well, delighting in our children, and also helping them organise their feelings. So with a very small child, that might be... Um, mirroring some of the the how they're feeling a little bit or comforting them using um, words to put their feelings into words um, and helping them understand what's going on in their experience so so what we've all can agree on we can draw out that we need it's a sensitive responsive responsive parenting that develops these warm loving positive secure attachments is that right andrea absolutely absolutely and then if we can take that forward into one of bolby's other messages What he said is that all of this contributes to the child building their own ideas about what relationships are like and what they are like in relationships. It's a bit like relationship Lego, if you like. A child comes out building their template from that earliest point. And all the time, and it's an unconscious process, they're asking questions of themselves such as, is my parent reliable? And can my parent keep me safe? And am I worth loving? And am I worth responding to? So that sensitive, available responsiveness is a key way of facilitating a really good relationship template from when the child is very young. So two things I want to ask that I'm sure our listeners are also thinking about. 
is is it the same when dad attaches you know when, when my when my first son was born he went straight on to my as as with lots of women he went on to the to the to the father's chest because the mother's busy doing other things at that point and you know where do these where does the paternal attachment live we're talking about maternal bonding with baby as critical but what about paternal bonding i think i think now the theory has moved on from when it was first generated. I mean, Bowlby's theory came about in a time where um, there was a lot of uh, political um, sensationalization behind it, and uh, we have to look at the context in which Bowlby's theory was generated. It happened in post-war times. Um, And at that point, there was a lot of emphasis on the mother being the key provider of care. But now we know from research that actually that sensitive and available um, and responsive parent can be either mother or father. Um, and that's something that research has shown. So it provides a really hopeful message. I mean, other research has shown that actually fathers do tend to engage in much more rough-and-tumble play, whereas mothers provide the more comforting and soothing and sensitive response. But either way, it's a response that is of good quality that is always key to generating that good quality attachment between any parent and child. And later on, I was reading um, a, an article in the Journal of Paediatrics about that, that rough house play that, you know, I have two boys, my husband loves rolling around the floor with them and they end up, after about 10 minutes, somebody says, ow, that hurt, get off me, etc. Mm. Et but actually, play like that is very important for children's emotional regulation, for their resilience. It, it plays a really important role, doesn't it? it? That is attachment in action, isn't it? They're investing in those bonds together through play. Oh, absolutely. Um, we know that play is key to generating trust in a relationship, and, and trust is a building block of any attachment relationship. So play provides a really good segue into that. Um, and again, that's something that we do know from the research. And all of us together, we women, we will all know um, someone who ha- didn't have such an easy birth and may have suffered from postnatal depression or their baby may have been taken away quite rapidly after birth. And I think th- for women listening who have experienced that, you know, they may be thinking, well, I'm really worried about the early attachment I've had with my baby if I wasn't feeling well, either mentally or physically post-birth. And have you got anything reassuring to offer them, Andrea, if they're thinking and worrying about their early attachments with their baby? I, I think um, I think picking up on that Lego metaphor might be useful here because actually we know that things can be taken apart, dismantled and rebuilt. So I think it's important to say that attachment isn't our destiny. It's important not to be fatalistic about things. If there's been a less than perfect start, it doesn't mean that things can't be put right. And again, that sensitive and available person may come along later in adulthood uh, and that can provide um, a real repair process to anything that has happened that has been difficult early in the start. And funnily enough, I mean, as you know, Andrea, I'm a criminologist. When I worked in prisons, where most people in prison have, vast majority have experienced very, very disruptive attachments in their lives. And actually what we know about desistance from crime, so moving away from crime and wanting to start their life afresh and non, you know, um, and in a conventional way, we know that those positive attachments to either a new group, a new person, falling in love, getting married, having a baby, that new new attachment keeps men from reoffending. So it's very interesting, isn't it, to go back to your lifespan theory of attachment because I've met those people on the very, very, on the, on the, who've had the brunt of the most negative attachments in family life and they're still able to reattach and fall in love and actually not reoffend following a positive attachment. Oops, are you there, Andrea? Yes, I'm here. Sorry, yeah. I yes. Just, uh, sorry, just missed the last bit there, Cathy. But I think effectively what I was hearing was something really hopeful about people being able to reattach. Um, and I think, you, you know, you were speaking about um, things from a, crim- a criminology point of view. And then speaking from a psychotherapy point of view, it, it's the same process effectively happening. Psychotherapy has been often described as a process of, of reparenting. And... And often I think it's important to point out that it is a slow process. Um, it's something that takes time. 
um, and building a trusting relationship um, is a real step-by-step process, but it is possible. And just to pick up on Josie's point, a lot of it does start with the simplicity of having emotional language and having your feelings recognized and validated and held by another person. So in terms of, we like to be practical on this show, as you know, um, in terms of people listening who have a small baby, maybe they've just had a baby, they've got a toddler, they've got a child under the age of four, can we come up with some, each of us, tips from the research that will help that parent bond with their baby? So I'm going to start with the idea of turning the pram around so that your baby can see your face, can see you smile, can see you, can, you can interact with them a, a lot more. Because um, I think that's a hugely beneficial thing for uh, babies and children. I think it has been explored in a piece of research quite recently. Uh, what do you think of that one, Andrea? Absolutely, yeah, because what that's communicating to the child is the idea that I'm visible and I'm worth spending time with. Lovely. Um, I can jump in there with something for when a child is a little bit older, and I, I always like to think about activities that are child-led. So looking at what a child is interested in and, and following that up, um, and again, it, it just emphasizes that message that a child is, is worth investing time in and investing resource in. So I would say look at what your child is interested in and, and follow that activity. And also be flexible about that. One day a child may want to stay in and play a board game, another time they may want to go out for a walk. And I think it's about being adaptable and being flexible as a parent to whatever the child is showing at any given point. So always being, I mean, the, the buzzword in attachment is attunement. And I think always being attuned to whatever a child is showing and trying to respond to that at that very time is important. And, and knowing that that is changeable. And I think my tip um, would, would, would follow on from that, really, which is around really, as, as we've said already, naming the emotions that you can imagine your child is feeling. So giving them the language or helping them with the language. So saying, you know, it seems like that's made you really cross, hasn't it? Or you're feeling angry about that or ouch, that must have really hurt. And also naming some of your feelings. So, so modeling that yourself by sort of saying, oh, that makes me feel really happy. Oh, I'm pleased with that. Um, and, and, and showing um, to, to develop that attunement that you're truly trying to get to better know each other's sort of mental states and how to recognize those in each other. Wow, those are really good, if I say so myself. Brilliant. Um, so I just want to talk about the actual attachment styles, which we know quite well, um, because lots of parents listening will want to know what type of attachment, um, for example, their child may have to them. Is that okay, Andrea, if you just run through them? Absolutely. So we know that the research over the years has told us about different attachment styles and, and we have different categories. And I think before we sort of jump in and have a look at the categories, I think it's important to say that there's lots of research to show that secure and insecure styles associated with different positive and negative outcomes. But the idea is that an attachment style is not a diagnostic assessment. And, and when I assess attachment style for research purposes, I'm, I'm not there with my doctor hat on diagnosing anything per se. Um, I think it's also important to say that when you assess an attachment style, it does need to be um, as much possible as a, an interview-based measure. And we call those evidence-based assessments um, in psychological research, and, and they do need to be carried out by, by trained individuals as well. So it's just about saying that the, the focus on evidence needs to always be there. But what the evidence over the years from all of the research has told us is that there are two different kinds of insecure attachment. Uh, one is anxious ambivalent, and the other is avoidant. And, and here we can see the distinction as really being about children who either approach or children who avoid. Um, and sometimes I like to call it children who pervade or children who evade. So it's about going in opposing directions. And if we think about what they'll look like if we're a fly on the wall, an anxious, ambivalent child will show behaviors that are really clingy and dependent. And even um, to the more extreme end of having a quite intense separation anxiety, even at temporary separations. And that's largely because they're afraid of being let down. And so often when children are on the anxious, ambivalent side of insecure attachment, things like setting clear boundaries and being consistent, um, if we're going to talk about um, 
practical tips. Those kinds of things are really key with children who are anxious ambivalent. And then on the other hand, we have the avoidant insecure attachment, and that's a little bit more fine-grained, and it can show itself in different ways. Um, and the commonality, though, with all avoidance is that children who are avoidant insecurely attached will, will not seek others out, and they won't ask for help. But the reason for that can be um, because of slight differences. Sometimes children will be avoidant angry, and they'll keep people at a distance with angry tendencies. And then sometimes children might be a bit more withdrawn avoidant. And, and these will be the children who don't like to have one-to-one -one conversations. And often it's better to engage children um, who are sort of withdrawn avoidant in a shared activity. And then there are other children who are more avoidant because they are fearful. And they're fearful because others will hurt or reject them. So with those children, again, if we're thinking about tips for building secure attachments, it's really important to build trust slowly with those children. But those are the general categories of insecure attachment, Cathy. Wow, they're so, so interesting. Um, we did have parents ask us ahead of the show a couple of things, such as how come some of, uh, a mother was asking, how come one child seems much more attached to one parent and not the other? That kind of felt imbalance, which often looks and feels like they have a more, a more secure, positive attachment with one parent. And actually it may not be true, but that's how it feels. Absolutely. And, and when children are young, that can really be the case. And we know this from the classic experiment, The Strange Situation, which is what Mary Ainsworth's contribution was. And in that experiment, she looked at children's responses to separation and reunion with each parent. And it is possible to have a child who is securely attached to one parent and who is perhaps insecure avoidant with another parent. Um, but what is often important to look at is how they separate and how they reunite with each parent, particularly when they're children. And it's possible to have separate patterns of interaction with different parents when the children are younger. But what we do know is that those patterns sort of crystallize into a more general style of relating uh, as children um, move towards adolescence. And that's when you get the notion of an attachment style from adolescence onwards. And with this separating and, and, and reuniting, that's very interesting. So if you're listening and, uh, you know, your child... Well, my, my children never bat an eyelid when I go away or, or even come home that often. <laughs> Is that a bad sign? Well, I think here it's really important to look at, um, to look at how that sort of not bothered attitude manifests. I mean, yeah. what does it look like and, and what does it show? And if I was a fly on the wall, what would I see? Um, and we know from the strange situation that the reunion part, actually, that that is the bit that is the most important piece of information about, about the quality of attachment. When you've been separated, it's how they respond when you're coming together. Absolutely. And yeah. just to pick up on, on Josie's point, we know that in that particular experiment, if a child is avoidant insecurely attached, it actually affects the way that they play in the experiment, because in the experiment there's a room full of toys, and a child who is avoidantly um, insecurely attached will not explore their environment, they won't play with the toys, um, and that's the kind of thing that manifests um, even on reunion. Um, so I think really being sensitive to how a child responds at that point that the parent comes back is key to, to just having a bit more information about, about the attachment relationship. And when, when both of you have worked in private practice, wh when you see what in adulthood, what are the sort of the consequences of perhaps children who have had that insecure, avoidant, sort of on the more difficult side of attachments, how, how does it manifest itself in later life or how could it? Um, well, for me, working mostly with adults, um, what I see when perhaps attachments haven't been that successful um, when they, people were younger could be um, sort of a lack of trust in, in all relationships and therefore, you know, a real difficulty. When we think how important relationships are, um, and you were saying earlier 
Andrea about physical health um you know it has consequences for us there so yeah difficulty in trusting um difficulty in terms of actually liking oneself because there can be this um internalized belief that well if I didn't feel very loved when I was younger nobody really cared for me then perhaps I'm an unlovable person and you know therefore have very low self-esteem um and therefore you know not perhaps have very good self-care make wrong decisions in their life um because they think they're kind of pretty worthless, unfortunately. Andrea, is that your experience as well? Absolutely. In, in private practice, I, I think that can often be the kind of client um, that you are sitting with. Um, is someone that does have um, low self-esteem often, and uh, and it does affect their sense of self in the sense that they feel that they're not worth loving or not worth spending time with. Um, and that's what you see in, in terms of the, the clinical side of things, but... I think it's important to highlight um, the physiological and the health um, aspects as well of having good relationships. We know that good relationships are, are just as good for our health as, as having a good diet or getting a good amount of sleep. And so I think there are some important messages um, to be given about how to, to invest time in our relationships just as we would uh, do it in the other aspects of trying to maintain a, a healthy lifestyle. Um, and one of the ways that I actually found myself getting into this side of work was was when I did my PhD and I looked at the relationships that we have, um, well, that a group of adolescent girls had with um, attachment styles and their stress hormones, and there were key links there. Um, and there is a key message there about how we have biological mechanisms to manage our emotional life. And those biological me mechanisms do change as a result of our social interactions. So just being very aware that this stuff affects our bodies and is therefore important um, I think is a, is, a, is a very important message. It's making me think, I mean, I don't think people associate um, the, the attachment with the physical. So that's a very interesting point. Um, I also think um, that I was thinking about attachments that children often have to their animals, to their pets, their dogs and their cats. Those also, these attachments matter, don't they? It's not just about people, but those kinds of attachments, love attachments to animals, I think seem to be very important to children in terms of their mental and physical health. Absolutely, and I think um, there's a lot about puppy therapy that is currently being researched. Um, and I think early on in tonight's talk, we, we sort of debunked what an attachment is and what it isn't, and, and the idea of it having a safety and a survival function is really important, and that's one of the things that Bowlby gave us. Um, I think pets can really provide... Um, a good social bond. You know, they give companionship and they provide soothing. And for some children, especially for those children that have had difficulties, that can be a, a really good opportunity to, to sort of test the water, to acknowledge feelings, to acknowledge boundaries in relationships. Um, pets will often tell you what is and isn't okay. Um, but I think there are limitations that do need to be acknowledged. And, and pets can't attune to a child's feelings. And as Josie was saying, um, about how it's important to have your feelings validated and held um, and responded to and mirrored. And pets, unfortunately, just, just can't do that. So there is a difference there. But I do agree with you that they can provide an important way of starting to acknowledge feelings and boundaries. Um, and children can really get a lot from doing that with animals. Well, on that lovely note, we're not going to say goodbye to you, so don't hang up, Andrea. We're going to have a little not. tiny break and come back after the break. The Parent Show is sponsored by Neve Solicitors. Neve Solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neve Solicitors, your complete legal solution. Family life has its ups and downs, and at Neve Solicitors, we're here to help with all your legal matters. Whatever your circumstances, we know how to handle even the most delicate situations. Our experienced family law specialists offer friendly, sympathetic advice on everything from trust funds to property, from partnership breakdown to wills and probate. To arrange a free consultation, visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neve Solicitors, your complete legal solution. 92.6 FM, Radio Verulam. 
So welcome back. Talking all about attachment. Uh, uh, there's so much to get through. I've got a list of questions here, Andrea, that have been submitted. Do you mind if I run through a few of them? No, of course not. Uh, great one. My, my children don't live with their father. See him rarely. Is it possible to still have a strong attachment with a parent you don't see that often? I think this one um, is a really interesting question, and and perhaps obviously um, the first thing to say is that the more interaction that a child has, the more opportunity there is to develop a good quality attachment. But ultimately, I think it's a it's a, a case of quantity versus quality, and this is the quandary that that was sort of in here. Um, from a from an attachment perspective, quality will always win out. Um, and, and today we're always negotiating greater distances across time and across space. And, and so sometimes technology can really facilitate quality interactions when, it, when a parent isn't there. And, and things like FaceTime can be so useful for that. Um, I think speaking from a research perspective, um, when I do attachment style interviews, what I'm always looking for is evidence of feeling close, um, distinguished from actually being close. So not feeling close and idealizing, but I'm talking about being close where you get some really good tangible evidence of supportive interactions, um, perhaps of a child confiding to the parent if they feel um, stressed. And that is the stuff of a good quality attachment. And if there is um, evidence of that being there, there's no reason why a good quality attachment can't be the case, even with someone who isn't seen as often. Lovely. Now I've got. I know that lots of teachers are listening tonight who have who who are who are you know a, a primary attachment figure in some cases for lots and lots of children. And what is your best advice for teachers who are coming across children in their practice that may be very insecure or very anxious, avoidant, or you know, and and they really need some concrete, practical tips themselves as professionals, as practitioners, on how to help these children feel secure during the school day. I absolutely. I think one of the key things is that um, a lot of children will, who are insecure in some way won't ask for help. So I think it's about being aware when that actually happens. Um, so we know that children who have a, a, a more fearful type of insecure avoidant attachment won't ask for help because they're worried about being rejected. So creating an environment where they feel welcomed, um, and where they feel that their feelings are okay to be expressed is probably one of the key tips that I would give. Um, and trying to find ways of, of engaging children um, in their own in their own personal um, ways. For example, a child who's sitting in a corner will need a different way of being engaged compared to a, another child who's who's very vocal um, and who who has no problem um, speaking out. Um, children sometimes who are more on the angry um, end of the avoidant, insecure style, um, they may find it difficult to share in activities with the teacher or to follow instructions. So just being aware of, of the different ways that the insecure styles manifest, I think, is, is really important. Um, and with all of the insecure styles, there will be some difficulty on, on picking up on emotional cues. So children may not be able to read the teacher's face as well. And then I think lastly, the, the thing to say is that actually attachment theory at its heart is, is about consistency. So looking at how change um, manifests um, during the day, you know, even from little things like change in the actual classroom. Um, recently, a lot of my work has moved towards looking at place attachment and how people can be just as attached to places as they can be to people. So looking at maintaining consistency, um, even in the classroom setting, can be quite a powerful way of making sure that children who are all of the different types of insecure attachment feel safe and secure to learn in the classroom. Yeah, that's very interesting because transition is always very yeah, stressful because people don't like change in general, do they? No, not really, not at all. No, nobody does. Um, on to teenagers. Do teenagers still need to be cuddled, asks one parent. Oh, that's an interesting one. I think um, some will, okay? Um, and I think what's really interesting um, about um, attachment in adolescence, and that's where a lot of my research actually starts, is because... What we see in adolescence is a real stark contrast to what we see in children. So children are all about obtaining 
proximity and closeness to their attachment figures, to their parents. And teenagers seem to be doing the, the absolute opposite. They seem to be unattaching from their parents. And this is especially because they are looking to become more autonomous. And developing autonomy is, is what we know to be a key task of adolescence. But what the research tells us is that developing autonomy is always best achieved against a backdrop of a secure relationship with parents. And it's that secure base that Josie mentioned. It's that secure base that teenagers need to know is there. But how that secure base is provided will vary by individual. So again, it's about being attuned to the individual teenager's needs. Some teenagers will need cuddles. Some teenagers may prefer um, just to have the parent engage in a shared activity with them. Some, some teenagers may be okay with just having that interaction over a family dinner. It just needs to be something that says from the parent to the child the message of we're here for you. Yeah, and it's just, again, it's about being sensitive and attuned and our parenting evolving, you know, in, in as the child grows. They're not staying the same, are they? Absolutely, um, and it's really about being flexible to that. Um, and flexibility is really the heart of, of a secure attachment in, in anybody, from a child all, all the way to an adult. It's always about being flexible to the other people in your environment and also to your, to your own needs. Um, a nice way of saying it is that, you know, we are... Um, dependent on our on our interdependence. Uh, is it true that children who have secure so let's talk about the lovely outcomes if you have a secure positive attachment to your parents. I've read that those children are more likely to to, to form better love relationships as adults. Um, Absolutely, that is that is definitely the case. It has considerable significance for emotional development, and uh, and that is across the lifespan. And if, and in fact, some of the research shows that the effects become stronger. Um, towards adulthood. Um, so we do know that the emotional development um, is something that is, is key and it's a key outcome of a secure attachment in early years. But also that extends to better peer relationships and also things like lower risk of behavioral um, problems as well, particularly things like delinquency. So those are all um, some of the different outcomes of associated with securely attached children. So just those lovely words, again, summing up sensitivity, responsiveness, um, flexibility, attunement, attunement, which is gorgeous. Synchronous. Yeah, all of those things are protective assets, aren't they? They keep children secure and safe. Yeah, I would say that um, if there's any sort of take-home message from tonight, those would be the sort of three words. They would be, you know, sensitive, available, responsive. Sensible of an SAR, we can remember those. That's great. We're going to put those up on our Facebook in a minute. Um, we know that, uh, yeah, quick question about gender differences, Andrea. Are there anything, anything that parents need to know about? Is there anything specific in the research about boys and girls, the way they attach or not um, securely to parents? Or um, I know Josie here has twins, don't you, Josie? Yeah. If there's anything interesting on twins, we'd like to hear it as well. Research has shown that there's a higher prevalence of avoidant attachment style in in males, um, and then there's greater frequency of the more anxious, ambivalent, insecure attachment style in females. But I also think it's important to remember that at any any given time, you know, we're looking at about 60% of the population are securely attached, which which does provide a hopeful message. But um, in terms of the insecure, there has been some research to show show that split between the anxious, ambivalent females and, and then the more avoidant males. And then that also transcends to a, to a lot of the sort of typical couple relationships that, that we see in, in the literature as well in adulthood. So the avoidant male and the, the clingy female. Um, but again, I think it's Im- important to just think back to the, the, the origins of attachment theory when Bowlby talked about the safety regulating function and males and females equally when they feel stressed or distressed in their environment um, as children, um, boys and girls will equally seek closeness to parents when they feel that they are being under distress. Right, and with Christmas coming up, well, we're all going to feel, we're, we're all worried about our attachments, aren't we? And our relationships, fighting over the turkey and arguing, and it's all coming round the corner. Have you got any advice on how we can maintain <laughs> those lovely positive attachments through the Christmas period? 
Well, I was um, I was giving this some thought, and I, and I did think that actually Christmas tends to be the time of year where we, we have more, more of our most precious resource, and that's actually time. So spending time um, with our children and really engaging them um, in a dedicated way. And I think what I mean by dedicated is not to have phones um, sounding off with emails and messages, but to really spend dedicated time with our children and, again, to, to look at those activities that they want to do. So having um, dedicated time where the children get to express um, whatever they want to play with um, and having the parent um, follow suit with that and having child-led activities um, and taking a step into the child's world and, and probably having lots of fun in doing so. That means I'm going to be doing Monopoly all Christmas. My nine-year-old's obsessed with Monopoly. What about you, Josie? What will you be doing when you're tuning? Well, on Andrea's very good advice that I'm just going to have to relax about the tidiness of the house, <laughs> not be thinking about, you know, what the next meal's going to be, but really just sort of spend that good time probably delighting in the in the presence that they've got and letting them show them to me letting them explain how they work you know and really engaging with them and being child-led it, it could be a lot of fun couldn't it more fun than tidying up that's right we're trying to pick the play-doh out of the carpet i don't like that one <laughs> um so listen andrea unfortunately we're going to have to let you go which is very sad because um we're enjoying our conversation so much um is there any any last points or roundup points that you'd like to make to parents listening or carers? Yeah, I think I I was thinking about some takeaway um, tips about attachment theory and what would I write on the back of a postcard if I, if I had to tell um, or share some main tips about attachment. And, and the theory has so many layers, but I, I was thinking about three things that I think I would say is that, you know, early caregiving experiences matter um, and they really do set the stage for how we come to think about relationships when we're older. And again, it's to emphasize that attachment isn't our destiny. We're not doomed to fail, but there really are things that we can do to give our children a good start in the world. Um, and then the second point was, was all about what we've said time and time again this evening about being responsive um, and being responsive in a way that is sensitive to the child's needs and, and showing the child that you really are attuned to them. Um, and then lastly, I think there's something to be said for simple is best um, and that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So just spending time with um, listening generously and gently to our children can be really powerful ways of building secure attachments. Brilliant. Dr. Andrea Oskis, thank you so much for joining us. And Andrea, if anybody wants to contact you in your private practice, presumably they can find your details online or get in touch with us and ask. Absolutely. It would be a pleasure. Lovely. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank Take you care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Dr. Andrea Oskis, and she's a senior lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University. And coming up after this tiny break will be F Dr. Felicity de Zuleta, one of the most eminent um, psychiatrists in the area of traumatic attachment. Welcome back to The Parent Show, talking all about attachment theory this evening with myself in the studio. Josie Nicholson is here as well. Hi, Josie. Hello. And we're now going to be speaking to uh, Dr. Felicity de Zuleta, hopefully who is on the line. Are you there, Felicity? I am, I am. And just to give our listeners a little introduction, you're the Emeritus Consultant Psychiatrist at SLAM, the NHS Foundation Trust, and Honorary Senior Clinical Lecturer. And I know that you're one of the um, great experts on trauma and attachment. Is that correct? Uh, supposedly. <laughs> <laughs> very modest. But very I modest. must say that I'm a psychotherapist above all. I'm a psychiatrist. It's called a psychiatrist in psychotherapy. Lovely. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we've got lots of questions for yeah. you. And, and the most important one of all is when, how does trauma affect children's attachment? That's the one everybody's been asking. Okay. Well, I think it helps to realize that uh, our brain is um, a social brain, and it doesn't really function unless, uh, we have a social, unless our attachment system works, because it relies on making uh, relationships with others and connecting with others. So right from the beginning of our life, even in the womb and after that, we have this attachment system which is, makes uh, babies 
uh, want to be looked after by parents and they make it very clear what they need. And parents wanting and uh, being genetically programmed to respond to their children. But unfortunately, things go wrong at times. And an infant, a baby, a child uh, can suddenly find themselves in a situation in which they're terribly stressed, so frightened or terrified that they have no, and they have no way out. And at that point, the brain is flooded with uh, stress hormones. The body is terribly aroused. There is no parent, or the parent is the cause of this terror, which is the terrible solution because a baby, a child, goes to the parent for help and safety. But if the parent is the cause by being abusive or neglectful, then that kid has nowhere, nowhere to go. So that's so the effect of sort of trauma on early children's experiences. Yeah. And so it affects the brain, it affects the immune system in the brain, it affects the neurology of the brain, the structure of the brain, and our psychological system. And that is where all the problems arise from. And it's called toxic stress, basically. And it changes the way the brain functions. It changes the way we see the world, the way we think of the world, the way we act. And Felicity, we've talked about sort of trauma and attachment. What about um, children who may have a very secure attachment and a, a lovely experience of positive attachments with their parents, but then later on experience um, you know, grief perhaps very, very early in their lives or something quite traumatic? Uh, do they generally recover well from the experience of yes, grief or loss because they've had the secure base? A secure base is a very important uh, uh, factor in preventing you from being traumatized by later events. However, do remember that grief is a normal reaction. We are attachment animals, and when we lose a very important attachment, we grieve. And, of course, that leads to loss, and it depends how young the little one is and what age the grief happens. For instance, if a little child is at the age when they believe in magical thinking that their thoughts can do harm and they have a big row with mum and then mum gets run over outside in the street. At that point, they may have a horrible fear that they have damaged, killed their mother or something of that kind. So what is important is that at those moments there is a secure parent who is there enabling the child to go through the grief and to recover. And that's very positive, isn't it? I love the way you say, you know, grief is a normal human response. Is it? That's, yes. So in itself does not have to be traumatic per se yes. that children can recover from. And I also like your point that um, children can benefit from sort of a diversity of, of people in their lives. There might be other people that they yes. can turn to. Yes. and It's very important, and that's where grandparents, I'm a grandparent now. <laughs> <laughs> grandparents have a very important role. Yes, you have a major attach, attachment to a mother, or it can be a father, or both. Um, and then you have other attachments, and that's why school teachers are very important for children who are not having a very good deal at home. And uh, carers of all kinds are important. So the more supportive attachments, the better. It takes a village to grow a child. Now Felicity because I have you on the show tonight and something's you know going on in London at the moment we're yes. all very aware of these sort of stabbings daily stabbings among young people happen so regularly yes. and uh, even where we live in Hertfordshire and I wanted to ask you about the relationship between perhaps often it's said in the newspapers about you know the perpetrators home lives and their you know their their parents and the, the relationships they have with their parents. What is the general General relationship between, say, attachment and, uh, you know, children's propensity for violence or um, well, early delinquency? <clears throat> well, this takes us to the recent study, well, quite recent studies that have been carried out in the States called the uh, ACE, ACE studies, and the, that's about adverse childhood events. Um, to, it was, in fact, pediatricians who discovered that in their adult patients, that they had who were having problems with losing weight and they would lose weight but then put it on and so on. They discovered these major life, uh, which we call, you can call trauma, but adverse childhood events is what they called it. 
And what they found is, by doing this wonderful study, which I recommend people read the book called The Deepest Well, which gives the wonderful story of how this all came out. But they found, for instance, that uh, the ACE studies have been carried out in other places now, and they found that if somebody has more than, a little child has had more than four adverse childhood events, which can be uh, all the different things that can be is um, an emotional neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, uh, parents with drug problems, domestic violence, parents in the uh, criminal story, um, these kind of things, or a community that is violent and so on. These events, if you have more than four of them, these children are more likely to be victims of violence in the, and they're more likely to be perpetrators of violence and they're more likely to end up in prison. 12, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, 15 times more likely to be perpetrators of violence. The wow. children that are in London and, and in, in other cities and countryside as well, they become, they're very vulnerable because of these adverse events, and they get taken up by drug, gang, uh, drug people, smuggling and so on. But the thing that I really want to stress, the main characteristic of someone who's traumatized is that they can't attune to the other. You know that loving feeling that takes place when you get when you have an emotional reaction to your baby and so on. They can't. These children haven't been able to learn to attune, and attunement is what we need to feel connected to somebody else. So these kids go around without a capacity to attune. So they are in terror most of the time. They have been so terrified, they go along in terror. They're in the fight-flight mode, and they have no capacity to empathize. That goes as well. So these kids, will, whenever they feel that there's anybody that perhaps a look that suggests that they might be in danger, they then retaliate to defend themselves. They are in, not in a normal state of mind. And Felicity, because we've got such a short amount of time together, what, what would you do if you were, say, you know, in charge of London, the mayor of London? You know, what, what, could, what could we do well, as a society to help these, 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 this situation well, this there? This is exactly what I am now doing. I, we are a little group that's starting to make a huge campaign. We want to make a campaign so that the uh, A-studies and the way that people work using that is, are applied to London. To make it simpler, in Scotland, they had the same problem. And they learned about how to prevent it by linking up the police system, the families, the social people, the hospitals, and so on, all took on an approach which is called trauma-informed care. Trauma-informed care. And it's the people, yes, and it's a, a way that means that you look at children and people, all of us, and no longer what's wrong with you, but what happened what to happened you. What happened to you. And when then they mm. be, what can we do to make you strong, to give you resilience so that you don't have to suffer the effects of these horrible things that happen Felicity, to you. where can people, because you've only got one minute left, where can people find out about that work and that campaign that you're initiating? Well, that, just look up A-C-E, Adverse Childhood Events, and it all comes out then. But I recommend a book called The Deepest, Deepest well Wound by Nadine Burke Harris. Lovely. She has a, a YouTube uh, a recording that gives the story in 15 Brilliant. minutes. Felicity, we're going to have to stop it there. Thank you so much for your contribution. And we will be making that into a podcast tonight show so people can listen back to all the lovely all words right. of wisdom. Sorry. Thank you so, so much. much. Take care. Take Thank care. Thank you. Bye. We've only got 40 seconds left on the show. So what do you think, Josie? Round it up for us. What do you think we've learned about attunement? Well, 
There's so much, as There's I so think much. Andrea said, on many different levels. I really, really liked the three words she used. Sensitive, available, responsive. I think that's such an easy take home. We can all remember that, can't and, we? And it's simple. I liked her simple is best. Let's just try and do a little bit more sensitive, yeah. available, responsiveness. Let's do that over Christmas with our children. Super. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Josie Nicholson, I'm Cathy West, and thanks to our guests Felicity De Zuleta and also Dr Andrea Oskis. All the best. Neve solicitors are proud to sponsor The Parent Show. The friendly team at Neves includes specialists who can guide you through all the legal ups and downs of family life. Visit nevesolicitors.co.uk. Neves solicitors, your complete legal solution.